Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining us today, we have Jennifer Price. Jennifer, are you here? I am here. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. And so today you're joining us from Pennsylvania, is that correct? Yes, where it is uh, snowing. (laughs) Oh, snow. I just got back from Ohio where it was snowing, and it was the first time seeing it in about five years. And I think I'm good for another five years. Uh, Well, thank you for joining us today. I'd like to get started by having you give an introduction of yourself for our listeners. Sure. So my name is Jennifer Price, and I am a special education attorney. I'm based out of the Pittsburgh metropolitan area. Um, I started in this area as a prosecutor. I was a prosecutor for about five years in the adult division. I then moved over to the juvenile division, And the juvenile division was where I was introduced to this world of special education and IEPs, which um, some people find to be a little uh, out of the norm for the typical trajectory, at least for some lawyers to get into this. But the criminal world was the world where I first learned about it because that was where parents would come when, you know, kind of worst-case scenarios happened because their child has now been arrested for something that may have been consistent with their child's disability. Um, Or they might have to explain to the judge why their child is missing so many days out of school, and they would complain that the school is calling them every day, saying, come pick up your child, come pick up your child. Um, So once I had my son, I knew that I wanted to leave the DA's office at that point in time, or I knew I wanted to leave the DA's office, but then once I had my son, I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I left. Uh, So once I had him, I then opened up my own practice, and I've been practicing in special education since. And when did you open your practice? How long ago was that? So that would be about five or four and a half, five years ago. Wow. (laughs) Well, congratulations on doing that. And that's a really interesting start and way to find the special education sector, Um, definitely. Can you tell us when you say about parents being called to pick up their children from school um, and then they're going to court, is that like with regards to truancy stuff, but they're getting called to pick them up because of behaviors, or what were your experiences? Uh, It was a little bit of both. Um, So a lot of the times the parents would complain, well, the judge would question, you know, why the child is missing so many days, even though the parent may not have officially been in truancy court. Um, the juvenile probation officers have as one of their responsibilities to oversee the child, make sure that they are you know, academically doing well in school as well as following the terms of, their, of the conditions of their probation. Um, and so most of the judges, if not all the judges in juvenile court, always want to know how the child is doing academically. And if a judge hears about failing grades, Um, being suspended all the time or missing class or being tardy, then they always want to know what's going on. And they'll look at mom or grandma or dad in the courtroom and and want to know what's going on. So it wouldn't necessarily be within the framework of the parent being called into truancy court, so much so as just having to answer for why, why his education is failing the way that it is. Why education is failing, uh, that might be easier to address on a case-by-case system. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, which is 
what I eventually learned once I left out. But yeah, you, it's, everyone is uh, everyone is not the same, and everyone's situation is certainly not the same. And every school district doesn't respond the same way. No, uh, definitely not. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are certain trends, and we always see. I see always um, families who have to advocate and the families and the teachers or the team members who have the most knowledge and the freedom to voice their, you know, opinions um, tend to be the students who do the best. Is that a consistent trend that you see? Uh, yes, yes. It is definitely a trend. I went in thinking that the trend would be the districts that are represented by the um, the best attorneys, meaning the attorneys that are not just competent in the area of law but also provide regular consistent training, would be some of the better school districts, and that's not that's just not the case. So those districts actually can tend to have some of the most issues, and so they uh, I can have a, I tend to have a lot of cases out there. But yeah, the parents that basically micromanage the situation. Um, but also, I would say micromanage the situation, but try to come at it from a stance of collaboration. We're all a team. Let's work together, as opposed to finger pointing. Tend to also get more, uh, get uh, further along. Never tell parents how they should feel. <laughs> Those feelings are theirs to feel. Same thing for teachers or for any educator who I'm working with as well in in the role of um, like an advocate. But it's really helpful if you are, you know, viewed as reasonable, right? So have emotions. You can occasionally, you know, show those emotions and be emotional, but it's the most easy to have a conversation with people who are presenting as rational. That can be really challenging, though, when the people you're talking to sometimes seem really kind of in left field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I totally agree with that just because, and I tell parents the same thing, that, you know, it's 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 totally appropriate to, you know, break down and cry, you know, with me in a meeting one-on-one or whatnot, and it's totally appropriate to feel overwhelmed. Um, but I, I also rec- or advise them to keep in mind that the teacher may also be overwhelmed because they could be facing a teacher that is just not used to dealing with this or just doesn't know how to deal with this or is not um, given appropriate direction from their special ed director or superintendent on how to deal with it so they could be just as overwhelmed as the parent. Great point to emphasize um, is that we're all feeling feelings, whatever they are in these meetings, and anyone who's experiencing any anxiety, um, a behavior analyst who I used to work with in Cambridge Public Schools tells us that you drop 40 IQ points in times of high anxiety up to. And um, I don't think really any of us have <laughs> have that much to spare. Um, so, you know, I, there are strategies for families uh, at meetings and when interacting, and that's a really good one is to kind of, you know, think of everybody on the team. I, I've also suggested, you know, look at whoever you think is most aligned with your perspective or with your child and speak to them. And then usually there's more than one, but in, I feel in all cases there's usually one. Do you have other kinds of strategies and advice that you'd be willing to share with us and our listeners today? Um, yeah, I, I like that one of finding who your team member is and then kind of lock forces and join hands that way. Um, I also highly, highly encourage parents to take copious notes um, and even take someone with them to the meeting so that maybe that person can take all of the notes while 
the parent is the one speaking because, uh, you, you know, you can lose a lot of information when you're trying to listen and talk at the same time. So taking someone else in there to at least take notes for you as the parent is always uh, something that I recommend if they're able to find someone. And then take copious notes in the sense of keep records of everything. Um, we as lawyers love special ed or, you know, lawyers that represent the child, rather. We love all of the note-taking. We love all of the documentation, uh, emails, whatever it is. Um, because if something happens and I don't have to be in a due process hearing over it, then, you know, the documentation, it can go either way, but at least I have the documentation within which to work as opposed to everything being he said, she said, and I drove up to the school and I talked to them in person or I called them. You know, it's okay to call them or mention it when you see them, but always follow up with an email just to make sure that there is nothing that's been misunderstood and everyone is on the same page, uh, which also can help you in the in the end also. Nothing like a timeline, right, that can be created with those permanent products. And I would say that the behavior analysts and most educators out there, too, are thriving off data. <laughs> like, we crave it, so... Yeah. yeah, you know, take it. For families, it can be really overwhelming, definitely for any of us, but you're trying to live your life and work your job, raise your children, uh, you know, go through all of the feelings of of having to deal with special education and doctor's visits. So I think it's a really, really great advice to say, you know, have another person there, just someone who can sometimes interpret or maybe translate or reword or, you know, encourage you to take a sip of your water I think that can be really helpful for for all team members because they see like there's a a group. It feels like you're talking to a, you know as team. Oftentimes, and I've been on, I guess you would say sides, both sides. There feels like there's a divide, like there are sides with families or with schools or with medical providers against schools or whoever. How do you help? Like, what's right? What's the recommendation you have for? building that collaboration and communication so there's not a divide? Well, I really try to make it very clear, um, and I try to make the messaging even clear on my website when people are, are considering my law firm to uh, represent their child, that I, I, I get that frustration all the time from parents, that you know parents feel like it's us against them, and administrators are on one side of the room or the table while the parent is on the other side of the table. Um, and so it then feels overwhelming. Um, so when I go to a meeting, at a minimum, I see myself as someone who can articulate exactly what the parent is trying to say if it appears as though everyone is sort of talking over each other and not really hearing what's being said. So I definitely, at a minimum, view my position as the lawyer, as the, you know, representing the child, but also someone who can really sort of let the, uh, make sure that the school is hearing exactly what's being said. Maybe say it in a different way, rephrase it, you know, say, hey, why don't we just take a take a little bit of a little bit of a breath, whatever the case may be. Um, but it's a, it, the tension can be there, and I've been in meetings where it really got pretty nasty pretty quickly pretty early on um and that was a situation where we definitely all needed to take a take a step back and, and take a deep breath especially because a lot of sometimes the kids are in the meetings also which isn't really 
very good, a good display of, uh, of conduct in front of the child as well. Very valuable points, right? A bunch of adults who should be models <laughs> for our children that we're there to advocate for. Yeah, there are times where um, families or teachers, they'll put, you know, student products or the photo of the child in the middle of the, the table. So when we're talking, if we reach over to grab a cookie or a tissue, like we're all looking at the child. That can help if they're not present at the meeting. Yeah. Um, but definitely being present, we want to be even more mindful of, of our behavior and, and the tone that we're setting there. When when families have you involved, is it almost automatically received as contentious because there's a lawyer involved, or are there times where people really see it as a helpful third party? What are your experiences with that? Um, no. it's uh, I am immediately perceived as the enemy, <laughs> and I can almost cut the tension with a knife as soon as I walk in. And, uh, you know, and the thing about it is we as lawyers, because I, I'm going to know who the school lawyer is nine times out of, out of ten, so the school lawyer and I can talk all day long outside of the company of everyone else and, and understand the issues and, and discuss it. But, yeah, as soon as we all get into one room, it becomes very tense. Um, the administrators tend to be very, very defensive. And my approach is, look, I understand that you – may not want to do something or the parent is asking you to uh, asking for a certain modification and you feel like you shouldn't have to do that or you don't want to do that you'd rather do it do it a different way but I need the data and if you can show me the data that the way you're doing it is working then that's a whole different conversation to have I'm here because the data that I have is showing it's not working and we have to come up with a different approach to address the issue that's going on in school. Um, and so I try to present it from the standpoint of if this really doesn't have to be contentious. I'm just here to try to find a middle ground. I'm not saying it has to be my way or all your way, but we got to find some sort of compromise in the middle. And I would say generally, you know, like if an IEP meeting is two hours long, about halfway through the IEP meeting that you can start to see and feel the uh, temperatures lowering and and people becoming more open and receptive to everything that's going on. But in the beginning, it's it's definitely tense. The parents are upset. Everyone's getting defensive about what they're doing, the approach they're taking. Um, but yeah, I just have to, you know, once I feel like once I start mentioning data and results and progress reports and and all of that, and they have to sort of back up what they're saying, then it, the the tide begins to shift a little bit. Oh, awesome. It helps to be really objective and to go to the facts. Yeah. <laughs> so leave, it, leave it to the lawyer to get factual. That makes sense to me. Um, when you're talking about data and the data is presented by the schools, I've experienced situations, and I'm wondering if you have too, where they'll say, here's our data, and look, it looks like everything's fine. And then oftentimes what kind of helps that conversation is a parent will say, yeah, but here's all the notes and the home logs from the teacher that said all of these challenges. And for whatever reason, your data is not capturing that, but we know that there's struggles. Do you, what do you do when there's that disconnect or people are interpreting the data differently? Um, I try to look to see whether what ultimately, how the IEP was written and the sense of what the goals were. And then I look at to whether those goals are in progress or have been met. 
Um, and I take that approach because, and this is why I talk about in using case examples from the book, that's what the courts are going to look at. You know, if you go, whether you go to a process hearing or uh, someone, school or parent, appeals it to a district court, what they're going to want to know at the end of the day is whether, um, especially when, when it comes down to those sort of scenarios, is whether progress has been made, and if so, what progress has been made, or whether, you know, and then I also look to see whether the measurable annual goals are even appropriately written. Maybe the goal needs to be tweaked altogether. Maybe that's not an appropriate goal. Maybe it's focusing on the wrong aspect, and it should be focusing on something else. Um, but from, from my stance, I think about what am I going to have to consider in litigation, and what is the court going to look at, and how are they going to view this information, and then take it from there. You mentioned examples in the book. Why don't you explain what book you're talking about? Oh, so I, I authored a book uh, entitled Empowered. Uh, the subtitle is Using Real Case Examples to Look Deeper into IEP Management. Quite a long subtitle. Um, but basically in the book I go through the different steps, as I call them, for you know advocating for getting an IEP all the way from the beginning of Child Find to filing a complaint, and then I also give case summaries uh, from cases from federal court cases from all over the country, and I summarize those cases and then give very specific questions that parents can or caregivers can use to ask themselves to analyze their situation. So I try to get parents to look at it from the same angle that a lawyer would look at it, just because, and I, and that was the reason why I wrote the book and asked the questions that I asked. I provide, you know, space for parents to take notes when they're answering the questions, um, because a lot of times, and most of the times, parents go into these scenarios very emotional, and when it comes to litigation, you know, we as lawyers have to take the emotion out of it. We're not emotional. The judges and hearing officers are certainly not emotional. They just want to know what what happened, what didn't happen. Um, so I wrote the book in a way that hopefully parents can really think about their situation without the emotion so that when they are presenting it either for an IEP meeting or due process hearing, because the majority of parents do represent themselves in due process hearings, they can sort of have the same sort of um, neutral ground by which to make their point. Definitely that resonates with me and, and my mission, not just as behavior babe, but in the advocacy work that I do here in Hawaii, we started a, a nonprofit uh, together for our keiki, which means for our children. And the whole purpose of that is to give parents ways to look at, um, you know, certain assessments, for example, ask yourself these questions and they can start scoring the quality of the evaluations they're getting conducted um, without having to wait for an expert to weigh in. Although, of course, if they end up in due process, they're going to usually uh, seek some expert uh, opinions as well. You mentioned child fines. Can you just briefly explain for listeners what that law means? So child find is uh, a legal obligation that's in the IDEA that requires the school districts and uh, places the burden on the school districts to identify, locate, and evaluate a child suspected of having a disability. Um, so, and I put that at the very beginning because most parents, at least the parents that I've come across have come to me, have said, you know, um, 
I've asked for an evaluation many times, and they refuse to evaluate or whatever. And as the lawyer, my first response is, "Well, did you put it in writing?" Or you know, but the reality is. At the end of the day, the courts have required the obligation for identifying a child suspected of having a disability on the school district. And it really is on the school district to go to the parent and let the parent know, hey, I think your child might be eligible. You know, will you give me permission or the district permission to evaluate? And then the parent can then consent or, or not consent to the evaluation, but it's, it then becomes, you know, as you know, a two-step process because even if the parent consents to the evaluation, they don't have to consent to actually receiving the services for their child. But I definitely put it first, and I even put a case in there to show an example of a court that has specifically addressed that issue of child fine to uh, remind parents that the courts are very clear, that the law is very clear when it comes to an evaluation or even locating a child with a disability or suspect it rather of having a disability, that burden really and ultimately falls on the school district. We've seen some situations where children might, um, a family might approach the school district and say, my child has a diagnosis of X and they're currently receiving some services. My doctor said they've been this age, I should, you know, see if the school is also can evaluate them for special education. So that's great when we have families who know that process and who's, who's about to the schools. And in some cases, they'll say, oh, we don't have to accept um, a diagnosis or uh, we don't have to consider those outside evaluations. Uh, have you encountered that or can you speak to the school's responsibility to consider evaluations brought by the parents? Um, so it's true. They don't have to accept an outside evaluation. But my stance is that they, if they're not going to accept the evaluation, they should then move forward to request an evaluation be done in-house. Um, because at that point, as a lawyer, I would say you school district officially are on notice and have noticed that the child is, has a disability. And so now you need to move forward to see whether uh, it's affecting their education and they now need a special, uh, specially designed instruction. But that is correct. They do not have to actually accept outside evaluations. So it's really interesting when we look at the intersection of certain laws and having moved from Massachusetts to Hawaii myself, I spent a great deal trying to figure out what was Massachusetts exceptional laws and what was federal protections. Um, and you mentioned a lot of the case examples referencing federal law. Have you practiced in states outside of Pennsylvania or how do you see some of the differences in states um, or how do parents learn about navigating what's unique to their state? Um, so to your first question, I have not practiced outside Pennsylvania, although I'm a, I will be moving into West Virginia pretty soon. Um, and I, But I will say that parents should check their state's laws because I know for Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania provides more protection than the federal laws. Uh, for example, federal laws mention other assessments such as a functional behavior assessment, but they don't require districts to engage in a functional behavior assessment. Uh, Pennsylvania does require a functional behavior assessment. Um, and then there's also a difference in Pennsylvania when it comes to disciplinary issues. The federal government says uh, if it's more than 10 days out of school, then, you know, you have to establish whether it's a pattern or practice, 
whereas in Pennsylvania, they have given a bright line rule, 15 days or more automatically is considered a pattern of practice of out of school placement. So I would always encourage parents to check their state's laws because the state law might provide more protection. It's definitely not going to provide less protection than the federal government, but it could provide even more protection. I was recently asked a question at a meeting, which one trumps the other? And the answer that I provided was the one that affords more protection. So it's not that the federal law trumps the state law, but if the state law provides more protection, then that would be an effect. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And if you take that to, uh, you know, it start out as a due process hearing in state, in the state, but then go on to a federal court, federal judge is going to recognize the fact that the state provides more protection. So there, it's not like they're going to say, no, federal law applies. They're going to recognize the federal law, but then say, but, however, in your state, there is even more protection. And they'll they'll acknowledge that and apply that. Something that I could think of uh, immediately that was different, but such a big advantage was in Massachusetts, all evaluations prior to a meeting were provided to families within 48 hours prior to. And so that's good practice. That could happen in other places. But I learned quickly that that was a state protection (laughs) that Hawaii does not have. (laughs) That's an excellent practice, actually. Yes. Um, I've let parents know you can make that request, and we do at meetings, or I let, you know, teams know, and then we usually put that into the agreement, the prior written notice. And so families who are asking for that can get that. And I think that's where we see those intersections. Like, families have a right to meaningfully participate in their child's education under IDEA, but what does it mean to meaningfully participate? I I bet it doesn't mean getting four 60-page evaluations and trying to process them all at one meeting. So. Right. Well, but that's an issue that, that it happens all the time here, too. Parents always want the materials ahead of time in order to prepare for the meeting, and then schools will not give it out until until the meeting, you know, and, and then they're like, I can't, how can I participate in this meeting when, you know, you're not giving me the documents until the meeting? So that's definitely a big issue out here in Pennsylvania. There's one of those trends we were <laughs> talking about that we see some that are different and some that are similar across locations. So in your work as an attorney uh, working in, you you mentioned some due process cases, and also the parents are sometimes representing themselves. Is that something that is advisable under certain situations and less advisable under others? Or where do you see, how do you see that succeeding? or, Or how are parents most successful if they do end up needing to go to a due process hearing? So I never advise parents to represent themselves. Um, when I read the research on it, there were over 60% of parents who represented themselves in due process hearings, and this was research done across the country. And of those 60%, about 10% won the cases. And, of course, the person surmised, at least in part, that it could be because 100% of school districts have a lawyer. And it, what it really comes down to is that the, you know, the, you've got you're going up against a lawyer who is going to know all the laws they're going to know how to interpret the laws they're going to so you're just out resourced if nothing else you're just out the parent is just going to be out resourced um, I would suspect that the 10 percent of parents who did win their cases were probably parents who had heavy documentation of everything and every issue um, and pretty much became you know lawyers over over the course of you know six months or a year however long 
uh, it took for them to get to the point of contention. So I would not recommend parents represent themselves. And I will tell parents also that there is a provision in the statute that allows for the reimbursement of attorney fees. And I talk briefly about that in the book also. And the way that can work is that if you're a parent who has the money to pay for a lawyer, you can pay out of pocket, and then the lawyer can seek, literally seek reimbursement of your money back. But if you're a parent who does not have the money to even afford to make the upfront cost, then the lawyer, you can see if there's a lawyer who's willing to take it pro bono, which would be pro bono or free for the parent. Um, however, the lawyer can then seek reimbursement in payment of their fees from the school district. And I take a number of cases on pro bono because, you know, there are many parents that need that need help out there that may not be able to afford, you know, the ridiculous hourly rate that some of us can charge. <laughs> well, it might be well-deserved, but still unattainable or, or something that people can't afford. In Hawaii, we, we have our Hawaii Disability Rights Center. Um, I know in many states, I don't know if all states, there's that sort of um, – resource with advocates or legal aid or legal advice, what does that look like in Pennsylvania? Uh, so there is also a Disability Rights Center as well. Um, and then, but, but here in Pittsburgh, at least, there is a law school called Duquesne University Law School that recently opened up an education law clinic. Uh, it's, it's, you know, uh, supervised by lawyers, but they also have law students that help to work on the cases. So they, that school opened up an education law clinic to also help take on some of the clients who may be low income and can't afford a lawyer but are having issues with their, with their child's school. Nice to know that there are supports somewhere out there sometimes for families. Um, you know, I feel like their hands are pretty full as is. What about when you're working with educators or when you have the opportunity to speak to teachers or other team members when maybe when it's not contentious or in a social setting, is there, or maybe just here on the podcast, is there advice that uh, you might give to them uh, that could help them be the most supportive team member for these, these children as well? Well, my first thought is, Whatever supportive advice is given to the parent privately, um, that they stay firm with that same advice in IEP meetings. Because I found a number of times that teachers will be very supportive, you know, in private with the parent, but then into an IEP meeting with a more abrasive principal or superintendent and kind of, you know, either not say very much or let that principal just lead with, you know, disturbing information and conduct. Um, but that parent might need another advocate in the room, right? We were talking about that at the beginning, someone who's on their team that they can sort of hold lock hands with. And if you as a teacher have great ideas, then certainly um, I, I would encourage you to sort of lock hands with the, with the parent and with either informative data or what you think will be informative data to back up your position if you see it could be at odds with the principal. Great advice, kind of bringing you back to being objective, right? It's not your opinion, my opinion, or the principal's opinion. It is this data, which to us conveys this fact. So good. It might help people feel 
um, less emotional themselves, right? And we talked about how emotions can be high at these meetings for sure. Um, you also mentioned your website, and I want to give you an opportunity to share with listeners any um, resources, the, the website itself, if you could mention the name of your book again, and any like upcoming activities that you might be doing or, or places where you might be speaking. I know you're moving. Um, but feel free to kind of you know, tell us where we can get all this great knowledge from you. Sure, yes. So my website for, uh, for the book and other information is jenniferoprice.com. And on that will be the information about the book. You can sign up for a weekly newsletter where I give very quick uh, tips and advice for it's mostly the advice is mostly parents as to how they can, you know, kind of form more of a collaborative environment with the, in the IEP meetings and things that they should know uh, when it comes to anything from paraprofessional training or, or why to even maybe start out one-to-one but then eventually wean your child off of one-to-one. Um, yeah, so Jennifer O. Price. And then I will be at the COPA annual conference next weekend in Baltimore, Maryland, where I will be presenting about autism spectrum disorder. And more specifically, uh, my co-presenter and I will be talking about how uh, the misdiagnosis, late diagnosis, or underdiagnosis affects the uh, African-American community, and even more specifically, the uh, African-American boys. Oh, that's fascinating to me, and, and we I will have to have you back on. We are going to have to come back to that thick. There's been some excellent research done or study published by Dr. Jason Travers looking at racial disparities and services and primarily uh, individuals with autism as well, and the Native Hawaiian population is uh, actually a very small amount of individuals who reside in Hawaii, but a very large amount of our special education population. So it's very oh, disproportionate wow. in some similar patterns to what we see with um, the African-Americans, the data showing that. Oh, wow. wow. I did want to just ask you, we end the call today, like um, how, how did you find Behavior Babe? And, you know, I really appreciate our conversation, and I think it's amazing that sort of simple overlaps or connections can bring us to such robust discussions. Yeah, so I was I I love podcasts, <laughs> and I was just kind of searching around for different podcasts relating to special education, and then I put in a podcast relating to autism, and that's when I learned about your podcast, and then went to the website and loved the website. The website is so informative with all all sorts of great information for parents and educators that I I definitely wanted to reach out to see if there's an opportunity for me to come on. Thank you for doing so, and there's definitely an invite for you to come back on. And also, I'd like to invite you to, you know, give me feedback on the web if there's some other additional resource or maybe linking to some of your resources that we reviewed today. I'd be happy to do that. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Jennifer, thanks for joining us today. And for anyone who's interested in learning more, it's jenniferoprice.com. And if you're interested in learning more about ABA and public schools or more about behavior analysis in general, you can visit www.behaviorbabe.com. 